guess I would define myself as a, an essayist and a teacher of writing, and I edit a literary journal at Boston University called Agni, A-G-N-I. I'm somebody who started out long ago as a dominantly a book reviewer, and then after some years shaded into other kinds of essaying, um, memoir, and so on. And then I suppose probably relevant to this conversation somewhere maybe 20 years ago got fascinated by what was happening in our culture with the rather swift arrival and adoption of, you know, the personal computer and the sort of rampant digitization of everything that followed from that. So I was watching that, you know, both as a phenomenon unto itself, but also, I think, wondering what it was going to do to the um, quieter culture of, you know, text and reading and print and so on. And this remained a kind of background interest or preoccupation. Hmm. And I would say most currently I've discovered myself um, kind of obsessed both in a very literal get out and do it way, but also thinking about it as just uh, taking photographs with my camera, I mean, with my telephone. Um, it has become a sort of little fixation of some sort that has me thinking a lot about uh, how we take in the world and what we keep and what serves us and hmm. what is artistic and what isn't and all this stuff. So that's about where I am now. Thank you. Um, you uh, In uh, the Gutenberg elegies, you, you wrote about, you speculated about the, the death of the imagination and you said a more likely scenario is a culture-wide diminution, uh, a diminution, uh, the la a large-scale leeching away. And then in the change in the subject, you said, if there really is a large-scale decline in artistic imagination, do you think we are living through a crisis of the imagination? And if so, why? Um, well, I basically would agree with every, everything I um, it said. Um, but for some reason, I'll have to look into this, but I paused on the word crisis because it's hard in our time period where almost everything is billed as a crisis um, to throw that into the sack as well. But yeah, I suppose um, in a large-scale time frame, if you can have a crisis over a protracted period of time, then I would say... Um, from the point of view of imagination, yes, we are we are having one. Um, I think it's happening on two fronts, um, and this ties into other preoccupations. But I see this as very much linked to a notion which itself is a little bit under question, which is that of um, sort of independent in individuality and subjectivity. I mean, I don't think we can talk about artistic imagination, really, without thinking of it as the product of, you know, one individual. I mean, I'm sure teams can do imaginative things on projects, but the kind of imagination I'm talking about probably 
respect a little more to the romantics and so on as a sort of a power that can be exercised and that uh, I see it under threat from two directions. Um, one is that I think the nature of our living, that which sort of has always fed the imagination, I think that has become um, abstracted in many ways. It's become distracted. Uh, I think imagination needs material to draw on and that um, in many ways the way we are living makes makes it harder to kind of tap a genuine resource. So that, that's one end, and that's very general and approximate. I think on the other end, um, from the point of view of the receiver or the consumer, I think we are so glutted, so saturated with um, product stimuli, you know, just information. I think that it's very hard for people to receive and respond to genuine acts of imagination um, just because I think you know the faculty of attention and focus I mean that's all under threat and I think anyone who uh, teaches at any level will testify to this too it's very hard to get anyone to calm down and focus on anything for more than the length of a sound bite so if you have this working from both ends, it's hard to see good old-fashioned imagination flourishing. Um, I don't know that it's been a, a human given, that it, you know, is somewhere written that it must be there. I think it is something that, uh, you know, certainly did and has and in instances continues in our various cultures, but I think it's changing. And if 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 um, if in our culture we were to be experiencing a kind of uh, a, a decline of imagination, how else? How would it manifest? How would we know if we looked around us in the world around us? What might be some of the indicators that that was happening? Well, as you know, as I said earlier, I do think it's linked to our sense of um, subjective individuality to some extent. I've been um, very interested, just to take an example from our side of the Atlantic here, but um, just to kind of, well, I suppose what you would call the sort of thriving or proliferation of this amazing um, low-level, bland national dialogue and a kind of passive and uninspired response to what are clearly acts of uh, incendiary idiocy. I mean, I would, I would link that in a way to some of the phenomena that I'm talking about. But, um, it's not just that this faculty of, um, you know, taking hold of the world in a steady way through imagination, it's not just that that is waning, but I think our whole essential status as you know, independent individuals is changing. Um, we're not becoming robots, but I think we're becoming much more subjected to um, vast 
systems. I think we live out most of our waking day in some way interacting with some larger system, whether it's uh, economic or otherwise. And I think this depletes us. I think it, uh, it makes it harder to register reality in ways that people might have done formerly. Um, so yeah, that's one way I think it manifests. I think that we <clears throat> live a more distracted, interconnected, and sort of shallow dailiness. Um, and uh, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, you wrote in, in the Gutenberg Elegies that when we spend a lot of time around electronic devices that, quote, the experience of deep time is impossible and that we're experiencing a loss of the very paradigm of depth. You said no time, no resonance, no deep time, no resonance, no resonance, no wisdom. How do you see that playing out? And could you say a little bit more about that? Well, I suppose that, you know, most recently my thinking along these lines has, had, has kind of come to focus on the whole question of um, attention. And by that I mean in many ways kind of the capability of pushing distraction aside and engaging with um, whatever it is that is in front of one. And that's why in a way I mentioned it's one of the offshoots also of this thinking about what it is that happens when I go around and uh, take photographs. They really are um, sort of little windows into a certain kind of attention and they sort of get me thinking about that. Um, my contention for a while, and I think I still hold it, has been that the antidote to the, um, well, I guess, again, the word crisis, I hesitate, you know, the crisis imagination, but you could call it the crisis of, you know, contemporary living in a sense. Um, the antidote really is offered to us in the experience that art offers. I mean, art isn't the only thing, but it is an accessible thing. Um, it allows for kind of heightened, intensified engagement, um, which I think also solidifies at those moments our sense of our, for lack of a better term, our existential selves, our, you know, who we are. I think we experience the same thing when we can get uh, out into the woods if we're walking and suddenly we realize we're uh, not checking our phone, we're away from the clock, and it's almost a kind of uh, hallucinatory sense that comes over us of just being away from all of these uh, static-filled systems. Mm. If you think that this used to be, you know, I'd say up until whenever we want to draw the line, it was more the human norm. I mean, for millennia, really, um, People lived inside of a different sort of kind of focus, uh, or they lived in without the kinds of distractions that we've taken on as just are given. Um, and it's a strange thought to realize that you know we're living in a new way. That if you went back into the 19th century and um, 
people wouldn't understand the experience that we're having now. They would have no reference for it. Most of it is indirect. A huge amount of it is screen-driven. Um, you know, communications are virtual. They're at a distance. And um, that's just it's a different world. And it's not to say that it's a terrible world, just a different one. Mm. You you uh, you ended the Gutenberg elegies by saying, "From deep in the heart, I hear the voice that says, refuse it." And but then the next, the change in the subject told the tale of your reluctant entry into digital media. And I follow you on Twitter and get the impression that you rather like it uh, as a uh, as a medium. I wonder if you could say a little bit about where you're at in your relationship with all of that stuff now. Well, I think about it a lot, and sometimes. Um in a sort of guilty way. Um, I think my response to it now has been to try to adapt it as much as possible to my uses and predilections. Um, you know, I use Twitter as a kind of sort of inspirational little billboard. I don't much read other people's tweets, but don't tell anyone. Um, but it's the kind of you go down the street and you have an idle thought, or you're looking somewhere and you find a quote that seems apt. It's a wonderful way to just put a box around it and sort of um, put it out there. My work life, you know, I think I'm not alone in this. It requires me pretty much to be internet accessible. I, you know editing this magazine, everything happens on a screen, all the submissions and interactions, so that's inescapable. Um, I don't do Facebook, and I don't use any apps. The only thing I use on my phone is the camera, and um, that, as I've you know said before, that's opened up a new kind of avenue for me and in my thinking. So I'd say I have a problem. Well, no, it's a it's a complicated and it's a somewhat guilt guilt ridden relation to <laughs> my technologies. The guilt part being that I do, in some part of myself, still feel that I would be somehow uh, better, more tuned up if I. Dispensed with certain things. I spent more time completely away. When I have those occasions, I come back uh, and I feel somewhat fortified, and I think I should do more of this. But then there are the 170 emails waiting to be answered, and one falls back in. Do you think that? I mean, I, what, it's really been really interesting over the last couple of years to see more and more stuff being written by. Nicholas Carr and all kinds of different people fundamentally questioning the whole digital experiment and saying actually in 20 years time are we going to look back and say was that really worth doing uh, by which stage we're too far into it to be able to get back out again can you can you imagine moving forward from here into a world without it or just into a healthier relationship with it or what what does a healthier can we can we go back to how it was before and everyone writing letters to each other I, again? Yeah, I, I don't 
hold out the great likelihood of uh, winding back the clock, though I will say in, over here there's been the, you know, the great debate about net neutrality and all of that, and I know that part of me follows this saying, well, let's just let it go to hell and become a corporate nightmare. Maybe people will step back away. We don't really need it that badly. So I, I haven't been as agitated about that issue. Um, by the same token, I don't feel that we can, uh, what's, when you say, you know, have a healthier uh, relation going going into the future, um, I don't think it would be without a price. I mean, I, if, if you caught me in one of my more pessimistic moments, and I do have them fairly often, um, I, I really do think that the long-term species projection is that you know, we're going to become far more um, socialized and interactive in that sort of quote-unquote hive mind sense. I mean, I do take that seriously as a concern. I don't think we can have the benefits of the Internet or digital things and at the same time know, preserve the best and most vital aspects of subjectivity. I don't think those, I think they are, um, or the contraries. And, you know, the more we give ourselves to, you know, our apps and our systems and doing everything by proxy online, it's not that all this free time is going to let us be our, you know, original pioneer self. It's just going to make us people who are enslaved to those kinds of operations. And to the degree that I do that, I also feel it. I'm aware of it. My relation to um, all bureaucratic things is much different than it used to be when I would uh, stand in line and talk to someone and, you know, try to settle whatever it was, banking or insurance. Now, Everything requires uh, an elaborate field, multiple passwords, and usually there's failure written into the system somewhere so that, you know, <laughs> you come up against the wall of the bureaucracy in some way that makes you understand the extent to which you are powerless against it. It will win. So mm -hmm. the only alternative is to either be very good at it or um, be very ascetic. I sort of prefer the latter. <laughs> do you do you think we will ever see uh, that anyone will ever write the great emoticon novel? Um, no. I mean, if by that you mean something that will use the actual visual language and technology of the internet to create an imaginative experience is that sort of what you're asking well i'm just i'm just wondering about you know because when i look at how your people 20 years younger than me communicate on social media they use as many smileys and faces and different emoticons as they do uh and, right. and, and, so, and some people do stuff that is entirely written in little pictures and I just wondered if we would ever get to a stage where people, someone could just write a whole novel in that that would have the same power and impact as something written using words. No, I don't think that's even a remote possibility. I think an emoticon is a sort of symbolic short-circuiting of some kind of a statement or an emotion. Um, to send a smiley face is not to communicate. 
affective experience of smiling. It's just to uh, short circuit that communication quickly with a little object. I think there have been um, writers who have tried to deal with, I mean, writers of fiction, let's say, who've tried to deal with the phenomenology of what is happening. I think um, David Foster Wallace was one. I think at the end of his life, he was working on a book which got published, though he hadn't finished it, called The Pale King. And I think he was really trying to wrap his fairly formidable intelligence around um, bureaucracy and boredom and some of the things that he saw as core features of our contemporary living. Um, I, I also think that it's a book that came out, and even though he had an enormous reputation from Infinite Jest and so on, I think it's a book that pretty much did not get read, and in part because nobody wanted to read about somebody just writing at huge length about the problem of uh, institutional boredom and so on. So it's a little bit of a a wall one is up against. Mm -hmm. An artist, I think, does try to render the terms of the world that he or she occupies and, you know, tries to make expressive sense of them. When that world becomes as um, networked as the world we all live in, it gets harder and harder to kind of do it justice artistically. Um, so it's a whole new challenge. I mean, I think most people who work in the arts are working backward. They are still projecting situations a little bit from a, a former, a former time. Mm-hmm. I don't mean Stone Age, but I mean you know, a few decades back. I don't think we're getting much um, art that reflects the terms of our daily living as we're experiencing it now. One of the things I loved, both I thought that they were both fantastic, both of the books, and I was very grateful. And one of the things that I was really moved by was by your focus on attention, because you really, for me, you really put your finger on something that that I sort of felt slipping away uh, in the world around me. And you really put your finger on it really beautifully. Why does it? Why does attention matter? And, and and what happens to a culture as its attention starts to decline? That's a. I mean, that's a, It's a deep, vexing <laughs> question. I think if you um, took it all the way to a sort of far extreme, but I, I think it has some relevance. I mean. Um, Simone Weil famously said, you know, attention is the soul of prayer. Uh, or it's, it is sort of the requirement, I think, for the experience, however we characterize it, of connection or connectedness. And I think that when you are... Um, when you are in love at first, then you are completely besotted with the other person. You are doing nothing but paying attention. I mean, in a sense, you are, you know, it is a kind of obsessive emotional focus. I think it is the 
root of, you know, connection. I think you get it when you are in a transport at a concert if it really is reaching you. Uh, I think those moments of, I think it would be hard to live um, in a state of perpetual connectedness. I'm not sure why, but I, I think it might be. Um, it's just sort of, it calls on the, uh, the reserves a lot. It's taxing, but I think it is, it's sort of the vital punctuation. I mean, all of our deepest relationships, I think, are anchored in sort of episodes of mutual attention between people. Um, certainly our, our thinking lives. I, I mean, what, you mentioned Nicholas Carr, and just to, mm. sort of following my associative track here, but he, and his famous article is Google making us stupid by admitting to, and I've seen this a lot now, the difficulty he now has doing something that formerly came very easily, which is sitting down and just quietly reading a book. Mm. Um, and I think it was an interesting point of focus because what he was really isolating, and I certainly experienced it too, was kind of just that one's psychological equipment has been you know, sort of significantly jarred by how we are forced or asked to live. And it's very hard really to sit and focus or concentrate on anything now because that's not how we live. We spend, you know, the greater part of every day necessarily just flitting quickly from thing to thing and multitasking and you know, tagging things, hitting links, saving links, doing whatever. Um, it's very hard to imagine that, that you're then going to go home and, you know, pick up David Copperfield and immerse for an hour. The mind has become too skittish. And I think what has happened is, you know, a certain kind of damage to the faculty of attention. So the question on the table then is, is it intrinsically better, deeper, uh, more desirable to be able to sit and read uninterruptedly for an hour or two? Is that a, just a given benefit? Um, or is there a huge amount to be gained from this other way that we now process our experience? So I suppose I'm coming down on the side of the, um, the focus and the attention, and I feel that disruption of my former ability to do things as a a negative mm. and you know so I try as much as possible to do things in my life that will counter that you know and that does involve selective turning away from you know various electronic enchantments um, just different things mm. and I wonder so so a lot, most of my work and my background is really in uh, sort of activism around climate change and, and uh, trying to find different, more imaginative, creative responses to how we engage with those things. What do you think it, it means for kind of progressive campaigning, progressive politics, the fact that we live in a time 
with less and less ability to concentrate, with less and less imagination. When we live in a time when, when our imaginations are sort of sh- shattering into a million pieces, how does that affect how we should be, how we might do campaigning and trying to make change happen, do you think? Well, I, I mean, I, I do think that, you know, one inevitable consequence of these very things is um, an essential passivity that, happens and it's in a way I think it's a fairly direct the organism responds to um, a, a condition of being psychologically overwhelmed all the time I mean in a sense you single out an issue you know a really important issue like climate change then you realize you could line up five or six others right alongside it and if insofar as one you know, tries to track what's going on in the world and pay attention. Um, it's not that at any point you think, well, this is irrelevant, this is not important, or this is not important. It's more that the um, the system itself just needs to sort of shut down a little bit in the face of it just in order to be able to uh, carry on with the rest of the more, you know, the daily business. I think it's really hard to create activism now. And I think a lot of that has to do with this particular kind of saturation. And I think a lot of it has to do with this, you know, thing I've been talking about, this exposure or engagement in systems. I think a lot of us carry this basic notion at the same time of that it's all too big for us, that the power of any individual action is really um, very small. Um, It's harder and harder to believe in the myth of the engaged individual rallying and turning around um, some great force. I mean, I think we all want to believe that, but I think it's just getting harder and harder. Mm. And... um, you know, again, speaking from this side of the Atlantic, and I'm as you know guilty here as anyone else I might imagine, is I'm just shocked that all of us aren't in the street all of the time, even as I understand that we know that we can't be and that we, you know, um, it's a simultaneous bewilderment um, and the state of being overwhelmed, if there is a word for that, overwhelmedness. Mm. Um, So, I mean, I really do think that action is possible, but I think it needs to be defined and scripted on what any person would perceive as a doable scale. I think people need to feel that if they did this, it would make a difference. Mm. So therefore, I think the tasks have to be somehow redefined um, so if know. if um if sven had been elected as the president of the u.s in the last election and you had run on a platform of make america imaginative again what might you do in your first hundred days in office well that's a boy Good question. Interesting. I mean, I think 
Do you know, just ju- just to say, every everybody I've every <laughs> everybody I've interviewed for this book so far, I've asked them this question, and they all go, "Great question." <laughs> well, I think you know, given that there are a thousand places to look, I think the first place I would look and possibly make it my um, presidential calling card, and I would also, I hope, telegraph a whole of values as I did this would be to look very hard at um, education um, from top to bottom from kindergarten through postgraduate and to um, really try to send not only the message of its tremendous importance but also to try to create an enormous and searching dialogue around what it is that we're doing to hold probably, you know, at this point, at least the whole generation of our, you know, population. I, I, I guess, yeah, my first impulse beyond any practical thing would be to open the dialogue about um, meaning, meaningfulness, and to what end are we all doing what we do, and I do think that the lens for this would be to sort of bring those people who are across the board responsible for instilling knowledge, values, and you know, questioning into our young people to find a way to bring that extraordinary um, brain power, that collective brain power. Um, into the field and to, you know, get to talking about it and to determine um, just on a very philosophical, and then after that, following the philosophical, probably also on practical ways, you know. But um, so that's an ad hoc answer because no one ever offered me the presidency before. <laughs> Um, you you mentioned before that that you you you're quite um, what would you say you're quite good at uh, policing yourself in terms of I don't do Facebook I use Twitter but I only use it to put stuff on I don't get into big debates with people uh, I use my smartphone I don't have any apps on there's a that that speaks to a degree of uh, of self-control uh, and uh, focus, which is really quite unusual. You know, there's um, what she called um, Sherry Turkle's research all about the power of smartphones, where she says, you know, basically you have a smartphone in your pocket. It's not just a phone. It's a very potent psychological device over which, which you are evolutionarily I- incapable of resisting. Uh, I wonder if you had any advice for people about how you've managed how you managed to hold those boundaries. Well, that's interesting because when you asked that question right before this about you know what I would do, and then when I brought up education in the back of my mind, though I didn't see the place to say it, but you know I really also had the idea of you know using that as the first place in which to declare a kind of um, almost obligatory internet-free environment, or at least significantly, not in a fascistic police state way. But, you know, um, I do see more and more articles, and they're sort of 
human interest be about you know the teacher here or there who forces all of her students to put their phones in a box when they enter the room and so on you know and that's a very sort of simplistic retort to what's going on but you know if you spend time in a classroom and I'm thinking back to years when I taught undergrads um, it's a genuine problem um, not just that they would literally have the phone on the you know, desk in front of them and would periodically be checking. You always thought, well, they were probably looking at vital information relating to what was being discussed, but of course they weren't. Um, but also you became aware of it as a possibility. There's a kind of magnetic thing sitting there. Um, the eye couldn't resist drifting down to the screen periodically. I mean, that's part of what we're talking about. Um, so, yeah, it, it, I don't know that I discipline myself so much as that I just have come up very readily and probably happily against my own incapabilities. Um, there's so much that I can't do or I'm too lazy. It's actually laziness rather than discipline. I've never learned to use GPS. My wife thinks I'm crazy. It's just I, I just can't be bothered to figure it out. Um, I don't have any apps, as I said, because I can't figure out what I would do with them. So there's a lot of um, just trying simplification through laziness and reluctance as opposed to principle. But if it looks like principle to you, then let's go with that. <laughs> One of, the, one of the people I interviewed uh, is a woman called Deborah Francis White, who's a comedian and an actress and uh, improv person. And I said to her, do you think we live through a time of, uh, of a sort of poverty of the imagination or an anemia of the imagination? You know? And she said, she said, no, I think this, there's never been a time like it. She said, look at young people these days. You know, they come home from school and they can, they can make a TV program. They can post it online. They can, make a, they can have their own radio show. They can, uh, you know, they can you know, be pre constantly producing and creating in a way that when we were kids, we just came home and watched the television. Uh, uh, is she wrong? I think I, I know what she's talking about. Um... And I think about this, too, especially because, um, well, I, you know, a uh, fairly technologically adept, adept son who's now in his early 20s, but, um, you know, he spent an enormous amount of time doing uh, gaming and so on, and we would argue about it a lot, and he maintained the same argument that it was you know, far more creative and interactive than sitting back and watching Gilligan's Island or something, which I'm sure is true. But when you get closer to the stuff of these uh, games, and also I think of the um, enormous media events that now arise from them, the kind of Game of Thrones culture and all that, it is... And it's fairly simple. The complexity resides less in the subject matter and much more in just kind of the sort of operational busyness of dealing with it and, you know, moving things around. And I mean, there's a different application of imagination. It's more to the 
process and less to the sort of thematics or whatever. Um, but I certainly don't want to mount the argument that we were all, in my time, you know, we were all deeply immersed in more important things. I, I don't think that's true either. Mm. So I do think people read a good deal more and differently even 30 years ago than they do now. I'm talking about people in their teens and 20s. I don't see a terribly active reading culture, and I don't yet know if uh, that will be offset by the fact that they've been living this quote-unquote really imaginative um, sort of interactive media culture. I'm not sure how the... Uh, things will weigh out there. And what do we lose when we lose reading? When we when 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 a culture stops reading, what do we lose? Well, I think one thing we lose right away is that it's almost never mind what you're reading, but if you're having the experience of sitting and translating these little symbols into um, concepts and sounds and so on, I, I think. Any act of reading, if it's not skim reading or, you know, hypertext link reading or workplace reading, but let's call it imaginative reading, I think in the action of doing that, you, you essentially create a space of solitude around the activity. And I think that is a deeply relevant to this sense of a, a distinct private identity. Um, I think you fortify the notion of identity just by acts of attentiveness. They don't have to be acts of reading. I think it's anything where, you know, you are interacting in an undistracted way with uh, some aspect of things, whether it's artistic or you know, walking or sitting in a boat and fishing, um, but just not being distributed across you know, a vast surface of distractions. One of the uh, so my, my last question is I is uh, I have so there's a kind of a theory that I'm cobbling together as I'm pulling this together and reading some of the neuroscience stuff about imagination and the impact that living in states of fear and anxiety and trauma has on the imagination and how the imagination shuts down under that and people who are in states of post-traumatic stress lose the ability to to imagine the future uh, and become much less imaginative and and whether whether the further that we get into a, something like climate change where we have a, an enormous existential problem uh, and the further we get into it and the more frightening it becomes, the less imaginative we become. We become like the boiling frog in the pot of imagination, as it were. Uh, so the further we get in, the more uh, the more frightening it becomes, the less able we are to imagine a way out. Does that does that sound like something that would make sense to you as a as a way of looking at things? Yeah, I mean, as you say that, it certainly does. It does make sense. Um, uh, I also think a huge amount of coping with any issue, and if we'll take climate change, but 
there is this sort of received intelligence or wisdom about whatever it is that's happening, and that's being furnished for us by aerial photographs, by scientific statistics, and various things that are uh, persuasive, all the graphs of what will happen to sea level, you know, um, incremental sort of effects. That all happens on one plane, and it's, I mean, I, I really think with anything like this, it's when it when it hits home, when it when it's in your yard, when it. Um, at which point, one might also say it's probably too late at that point. But um, I think in the way that we have to pay attention these days, we, we're paying attention across an enormous field. Things are coming at us that things didn't used to come at people in this way. You know, they came few and far between and in different ways. Now you wake up every day and as a citizen you feel it's your duty to see what's been going on in the world and you are instantly affected across a wide swath of, you know, um, your attention span or whatever by so many things to get any one of those things to feel real. Well, that does require an active, intense imagination, and sort of a, well, if this were my yard that we're burning, if this were, um, you know, my whatever, that's the kind of thing that rouses a person to think of doing something, and that is an act of imagination. It's an act of extrapolation and personal sort of connection. I don't, I'm probably not answering your question. <laughs> Um, no, that's great. I, I, I do feel, yes, I mean, in the big picture, I think it is hugely important as the world goes on and, you know, as more and more threatening and calamitous things happen that we not lose the capability to see them for what they are and to relate them to our own circumstance in a sort of meaningful and direct way. Mm, mm, mm. And that requires certain attention, a certain amount of focus, it requires imagination necessarily, 